Amen. Um, I'm going to read to you again from the Bible. Um, this is in Matthew. These are Jesus' words. We got red letters. These are the words of Jesus starting, um, what chapter is this? I can't tell. Six. Six starting at verse 25. Some of you may know this already. Do not worry. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need him. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own. As I'm thinking about this next series, which again is no surprise because it's been on our wall back here for a couple months now, we're talking about finishing strong and the end. And I'm just gonna tell you church, I, I've had a lot of anxiety my whole life over that. I'm somebody that likes to be in control <laughs> and know what's coming. <laughs> and the unknown is, is just terrifying to me, just trying to be fully honest. And so I read these words, do not worry. Do not worry, your father knows. And I sing ancient of days and I, he's gone before and he's, he's going ahead. <laughs> we have hope in him. And we're gonna sing more about that hope and, 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 and Jesus being our anchor. And I, I guess I just wanna pray, my, my prayer for myself this, this whole week leading up to this series that I know, Finishing Strong, I don't, I don't really know what Pastor Paul's gonna talk about. But my prayer is that God would just speak to me however he wants to. I want to be open to whatever he says. I want to be able to lay down my worries and anxiety at his, at his feet. So I want to encourage you to do the same, no matter, maybe you're, man, so excited for the end of whatever. Let's lay it at his feet. Can we do that together as a church and just cry out together, Jesus, I need you. Every moment in the past, in the present, in the future, I need you. Hope be my anthem, Lord, when the world has fallen quiet, you stand beside me, give me
as an anchor for my soul through every storm I will hold you with
your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning. One of my favorite parts of of my job right now is getting to come and share with you a little glimpse into what our kids are learning about. I love that we can have these moments to kind of connect what we are learning about as a body here with also what our children are learning about because they are still very much a part of the body of Christ. And I'm always amazed week after week, month after month at the way that the Holy Spirit just weaves together the reality of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully from the time we're little till the time we're grown. We've talked about holiness and what that really means to live that out. And um, and this morning, I have a question if you guys are willing to answer. How many of you out there would be willing to admit that at some point in your life, you really wanted to be famous? Anybody out there saying, yes, I really wanted to be famous All right, be even braver. Was there something specific you wanted to be famous for? Molly. New Lord of the Rings movie, all right. Hey, I would watch it. Alicia. (laughs) Can I direct your attention towards rock climbing? (laughs) So it seems like you can honestly get famous for doing about anything. You can get famous for singing really well. You can also become famous for singing really terribly. You can become famous for being a great dancer or for being a comically horrible dancer. 
And yet for some reason, it does seem like deep down in us, we, we strive, we desire to have and achieve this fame, to feel like what we do matters and that other people see it. And there's a lot of perks to being famous. I mean, I feel like you talk to somebody who's famous and you ask them, hey, what are the great parts? And I mean, they talk about like you get first in line, dibs on things, all of these self-serving gifts, these things like, oh yeah, it's great to be famous. Everybody knows my name. Everybody likes me. Everybody wants to smile. Everybody wants a picture with me. But the reality is if we spend any time scrolling through social media, reading any news articles, the shadow side of being famous is that your entire life is on display. And for some reason, we just seem to be obsessed with reading about people doing things wrong. We have this person who achieves fame, and yet we just almost can't wait to find out that they are just like us and make mistakes and totally make the wrong call. We're obsessed with what, what's the new scandal? Who, what moral failure has this leader now been, been accused of and, and found to uh, have committed? And that celebrity culture has permeated everywhere. I mean, even the church. We talk about so many church leaders, and then we find out that when there's money to be made off of your fame, even in the church, the lengths and the extent that people will go to to cover up. And I was talking with my sister this week, and she's like, we've monetized repentance, where if you have achieved a certain level, you you can't even experience that idea of repentance and restoration because the people around you would say, hey, that's going to cost our organization. If people know, that's going to cost us. And so a part of me just continues to wonder, why do we want to be famous? Why do we desire that so much? This month, we're going to be talking up in the kids area about King David and, and his children and this idea that as the king, they were celebrities in the best and worst sense of the word. Everybody knew who they were, and everybody was watching constantly. And so we look at David and his sons and their family, and it's like an ancient Israel soap opera at times. They are not perfect people, making the wrong calls, extreme cover-ups, murder, intrigue, all of these things. And we start to go, wait a minute, these are, these are the stories that we're supposed to look to for direction. These are the stories. And recently I've started to realize when we look to people as the heroes, they're always going to let us down. So even in these stories, David wasn't supposed to be the hero. God is. Solomon's not the hero. God is. And so when we think about ourselves as reflectors of God's image and of his glory, almost like this mirror that his glory shines through us and to other people, that mirror needs to work both directions. That as we receive the praise or the, the admiration of other people, that we are reflecting that right back where it belongs. Because when we hang on to that glory for ourselves, we become anxious as we aren't getting enough. How do I keep building this up? But if I act like a mirror where I'm constantly taking that glory and directing it right back to who deserves it, then I never get to that point of overload. I never get to that, I've just, I've got too much, too many eyes on me. So what if, church, what if we could really live our lives where instead of desiring to be famous, we desired to make him famous? If instead of feeling like I need to get someone's attention, 
we realize that we already have his. And his attention is all we need. His admiration, his approval, his love. Church, can that be enough for us? Can we live our lives to make him famous? Because fame for us, we see it everywhere. Fame is too heavy of a burden to bear. But God's shoulders are a lot bigger, and he deserves all of that fame. So um, I don't know, this week as you think about, hey, what am I doing to get somebody else's attention? I just want to remind you, you already have God's, and he loves you. And he says that you are his precious, precious child. Thank you. Pastor Mara, I don't know, anytime you talk about famous, my mind goes to the three amigos and their discussion of being infamous, which is more than famous. If you're not familiar with the three amigos, I'm sorry, you need to watch it. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about um, a topic that brings fear to people's life. It's the topic of the end times. And so, you know, this is kind of the image that, that oftentimes that we see of end times, you know, burning, and, you know, it, it strikes fear in people's minds. And even when I've begun this conversation of the end times, I, you know, I'm curious what images and emotions uh, come to your mind. Uh, there, there's definitely a cultural fascination with the end. And so you see movies like uh, 2012, uh, you see movies like Mad Max, you, you see The Walking Dead, of which our own Adam Hicks is a, a prime actor in that, uh, that little series. But we see these kind of things on TV. There's, there's a fascination with the apocalyptic. There's a fascination with the end. There, there's a church. There's a religious fascination with the end. Um, I've always been told that if you want to write a book that sells, write a book about the end times. People buy them like candy. They love them. And, and so you see a lot of churches that spend a great deal of time talking about the end times and putting big charts out. You see books like the Left Behind series. Nothing wrong with those books. I'm not bashing anybody that does that. Don't, don't mishear me. I'm not bashing the charts. And, and maybe you figured it all out. Maybe you've got that, that person that, that you've listened to, that they've got everything down, and they know who the Antichrist is, and they know the day and the hour. Can I just tell you, I'm fully aware of all of the theories and teachings on this. You don't need to come to me after this service and say, Pastor, you need to listen to this person or that person. Trust me. I've been through it over the course of my life. Um, I'm fully acclimated with the prevailing and the not prevailing views. And so I'm aware of them. Uh, and some of the teachings better than others. And some of it's more interesting than others. I, I had an elderly guy at a church that I was formerly at that always loved to teach through Revelation. Whenever he got a chance to teach, he wanted to teach through Revelation because nobody wanted to teach in Revelation. So he got to the scripture that said that, that a rock called Wormwood would descend from the skies and make the water bitter. And he explained it and he said like this, well, apparently there'll be a rock called Wormwood that will descend from the sky and make the water bitter. I said, well, thank you, brother. That's exactly what it said. But that didn't add any value to my understanding of that scripture. Matter of fact, the church that Josh and I, K 
came from, Tri-County. This was a subject, the end times was a subject that was probably handled almost on a monthly basis, several times through the year, and there was a certain view, a particular view, a prevalent, prevailing view that most people in the evangelical church hold today that was taught over and over and over again with much certainty. Uh, I'll say this, these are good people that, that, that teach with certainty and, and maybe at some point, I mean, eventually you shoot long enough, you're going to be right about who you call the Antichrist and when you say the time is. But there's oftentimes in my lifetime, I've heard many people that taught with great certainty on this that were clearly wrong, right? Jesus did not return in 1988, did he? Jesus did not return in the year 2000, did he? Jesus did not return in year after year I've heard throughout the course of my life. That does not mean that I'm saying Jesus will not return. What I'm saying is that some of those that taught with such certainty were wrong. And so when you handle this topic, I think you need to be very careful because there's a lot of uncertainty in this topic in the course of my life, I've, I've heard many potential years. Who, who would say, yes, pastor, I've heard many potential years. I've heard many per, particular personalities that were uh, said to be the Antichrist, that some of them are dead, that obviously were not the Antichrist. Maybe they were Antichrist, but they were not the Antichrist. I had a professor at Mid-America, Dr. Sawyer, and he was the Old Testament, New Testament literature uh, professor at Mid-America, and, and um, he seemed really old. He was probably my age. Uh, you know, it's, that's how that kind of goes. But he, but he talked about in his lifetime how people had come to his church and said that Hitler was the Antichrist, that Mussolini was the Antichrist, that Stalin was the Antichrist, that this is the year. And he said none of them came back when they were wrong and apologized. None of them came back and said, we were wrong. And so his take was, listen, this is something that maybe you need to be careful when you start naming dates and naming people. Could we be near the end? Of course we could be. You know, the, the early church had this impending feeling from the very beginning that they were near the end. And, and, and obviously Jesus did not return in the lifetime of the early disciples. And, and there was this impending idea, this, this ideal that Jesus was going to return soon. Were they wrong? Or are we supposed to live with this feeling that Jesus' return is near and soon. That, that we're anticipating that day that Jesus will come and make all things right. And it's not something we're dreading. It's something we're looking forward to. And we live with this feeling that he could come tonight and we say, Amen, come soon, Lord Jesus. Right? I've heard it said like this. this live as if Jesus is returning today work as if it will be another thousand years. So I believe as a church, God wants us to have this feeling 
that before this service is over, Jesus could return, but he wants us to work as if it might be another thousand years. In Thessalonians, Paul addresses the end in both of his letters to this church. Both of his letters includes language and conversation with regard to the end. And we're in 2 Thessalonians, they, they were afraid because they didn't live in the internet age. They didn't have a TV that, that could tell them everything was going on in the world. They, they lived in this fear that Jesus had returned and they had somehow missed it. That there had been this great event that somehow as a church they, they hadn't participated in. And Paul assures them, you won't miss it. <laughs> when Jesus returns, you'll know it. Everyone will know it. That this won't be something that happens in the desert that's, that's unique or hidden. Everyone will know when God draws everything to a close. It'll be obvious. In 1 Thessalonians, their concern was a little bit different. They, they were concerned about those who had died before the return of Jesus. And so Paul talks and, and, and talks about the return of Jesus and in 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 4, and so we're going to begin in verse 16 and move through chapter 5, verse 7. Paul writes, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And, we, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While well, people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you as a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. You do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Then let us, be like other, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So Paul uses this phrase in, in verse 2, the day of the Lord. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, is found throughout Scripture. It's found particularly in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets make great use of this word, this phrase, the day of the Lord. It's, it's re a, a reference to the end of time. It, it's, a, it's a time when, where history will cease as we know it. It's a time when God would fully intercede and intervene in the history of humankind and he will make things right. So the day of the Lord refers to that time when God ends the struggle of human history and he makes all things right. And Paul wants the church at Thessalonica and he wants you and me to see this impending day of the Lord that we believe, do you believe Jesus is going to return? Say amen, right? Amen. We believe Jesus is going to return. And if we believe that, Paul wants us to see it differently. 
What's the typical reactions? I think Amy talked about fear. You know, the, the day of the Lord, this ideal of, of Jesus' return, and, and some of it's tied to the teachings and how it's taught, leads to fear. You know, it's not unexpected to have fear when things are changing. You know, we, we, we have fear. There, there should be fear when you're, you're graduating from high school or college. What's next? When you're getting married, when you're having kids, when you're getting ready to retire, when, when, when you're getting older, there, there's fear. Fear is natural when we face the unexpected. And there's a lot of unknown about this day of the Lord. We, we get some pictures of it, some images of it but, it, but but we don't fully know. And anybody that says they fully know, they're fooling themselves. What will it be like? How will things be different? For, for some of us, and, and I think the, the younger you are, the, the more apt you're, you, you think like this, there's things you anticipate in your life. That you think, if Jesus returns, I don't get to experience this thing that's out there. Wouldn't it be a bummer if Jesus came the night before you got your driver's license? And before, before you're married, before you graduate, before you have kids, before you retire, before you have this trip. And, and so for a lot of people, this ideal of Jesus' return seems like an interruption in what you have planned. And there's fear and there's dread as, as you think about raising your kids or you think about whatever's in the future. And I had a guy that I pastored that, that wouldn't be part of our church. Good guy. And it was solely because Jesus said, in heaven, you won't be married like you are here. It is in response to questions of the Sadducees and, and, and what Jesus is referring to in that, in that little dialogue is not the ideal of relationship with people, but this ideal of legal obligation, and I don't believe Jesus is saying that we won't know each other in heaven. And so in his mind, he loved his wife, and he hated this ideal that when he got to heaven, there would no longer be this relationship between him and her, and there'd be no longer the, the, the love relationship, and, and I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. So oftentimes, we see this ideal of Jesus coming as everything's going to be messed up. It's going to be completely different. It will end all my relationships, all my friendships. And maybe we see the end in a different way. We will be with the Lord forever. That this is not the end of relationship. It is relationship in full. That, that God is inviting us to this place, not where community is dissolved, but community is fulfilled. The God who calls us to relationship will make all things new and make all things right and make all things better. The last series, I, I talked about trust a lot, and, and I believe trust leads to holiness. When you, when you trust someone, you're willing to give them your all. And when you trust God, you're willing to give him your entire life because he's trustworthy I believe trust leads us away from fear when we talk about the end. 
You know, it gives teeth to, to the scripture that says, perfect love cast out fear. That, that when we think about the return of our God, of the return of Jesus, it's not something that leads us to fear, but we trust him and know that when he makes things right, when he makes things new, they will be perfect and good and beautiful. I think the other thing that sometimes happens when we when we focus inappropriately on the end, is withdrawal. That, that we look at the world around us and, and, and things seem to be getting differently, different and bad and chaotic. And, and I've been parts of churches where, where the response is, let's arc up. Let, let's shelter in place. Let, let, let's buy a bunch of water and a generator and dig a basement in the church. And we'll all just move in there and we'll just avoid all this chaos around us. Let's retreat. But as we move through chapter 5, Paul's invitation is different. That the invitation is not to retreat, but the invitation is to advance into a culture that desperately is hungry for, is thirsty for, the church, God's community, to live in a different way. Paul says, let us be awake and sober. Raise your hand if you're awake. All right? People nudge the people next to you that can't raise their hand. Raise your hand if you're sober. All right? A few of you. Awake. Alert. Aware. Attentive. So, sober is not about the lack of alcohol in your, your blood, but it's sound mind. It's, it's self-control. To, to live with the end in mind is not to bury our heads in the sand or withdraw from life, but it's a call. We are called to be fully engaged. It's the importance of things like serve day. That the church comes together across denominations in our community and serves as one. And people see us together, unique and different. Do you feel the end is near? Don't be afraid. Be engaged with others. Can we acknowledge more than any time in my history, I don't remember the 60s. Maybe the 60s were, were very similar. I mean, I know the 60s were pretty chaotic. And those of you just a little bit older than me, maybe it is as chaotic as our times now. But in my lifetime, I've never lived in a more traumatic, divisive, chaotic time. We live in a culture of chaos and division. In week three, we're going to be talking about the church. And I'm going through a book called Resident Aliens. And, and, and Resident Aliens, Stanley Hauerwas says, the church is intended to live in a different culture, in a different way. That the culture doesn't shape our church, but our church should shape our culture. We live in a culture of chaos and division. And the church is intended to be this culture of peace and unity. 
that as we see the end approach, we are more committed to unity and love and grace and peace, even in the midst of the storm. And here's what I want you to hear today. The hope of Jesus' return gives us purpose in a chaotic world. Maybe like no other time in history, we have this opportunity to stand out, to be different, for, for people to see us and say there's something weird about them. Weird in a good way, right? Something strange, there's something peculiar about those people. And the only thing I can tell is they've been with Jesus. And there's something appealing in a culture, culture of division and chaos for a culture of peace and unity to spring up. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into chapter 5 as we finish out 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at practically how does it look to live within this purpose? How does it look to live with purpose during the end times? How do we practice unity? How, how, do, how do we focus on relationship with God? How do we focus on relationship with each other? How do we trust God to finish what he started? You know, we started, we started this, this morning's sermon with image. And it was an image of chaos, and we think of the end most of the time, that's what we we think of. And, and to be honest, when, when you read the Old Testament prophets and they talk about the day of the Lord, that's an image that you see, this image of fire and, and destruction. But my understandings of, of words are shaped by Jesus. That, that when I see the biblical text, I look at Jesus and sometimes it changes my ideal of what that scripture might have looked like or should look like. And so after seeing Jesus, I think this is a better image of the return. But it's not this image of chaos, but it's this image of our father, our brother returning. Yeah, yeah I think about that image with my boys and my spouse. How devastating would it have been for me as a father is when Terry would say, hey, boys, dad's coming home. The image they saw was destruction and fire. Here comes dad! Ah! Instead of someone that loved them dearly and only wanted what was best for them, See, church gatherings, one of the things that happens when we gather, you know, it's, it's important when we scatter, but it's important when we gather as well because one of the things that is intended to happen when we gather is we're supposed to be reminded of that day. That, that we live with this expectation that there is coming a day when we will be one before our Heavenly Father. And so as we gather in this place, there is a eschatology to this gathering that we're saying, hey, he's coming back and we're gathering here and, and we're celebrating that. When we receive the Lord's Supper and, and 
we receive communion, and I do communion every week. I, I love communion. And maybe some point I'll, I'll be brave enough to do that. But when we do communion, one of the things that, that Paul instructs, that Jesus instructs, is every time you take this feast, be reminded that I'm coming again. And so built into the structure of the church is this ideal that we are responding, we are reacting, we are worshiping the God who will return and make all things right. So how are you doing? How are you doing today? Honestly, this, is, this has been a stinky couple years, right? Give me an amen there. It's been a hard couple years for a lot of things. And some of you have went through things even, even beyond all the mess our world seems to be. This is a timely message for us. Because I believe all of us are living with this, oh, what's next? Maybe you're dealing with a lot of anxiety. Maybe it's just time just to rest and trust and say, God, I don't know how you're going to work this out but I'm going to sit and wonder and watch in amazement and praise you as you do work it out. Are you sober? Are you in control of your emotions? Are you still awake? I know we're about 25 minutes into the sermon. Are you still awake? Are you aware? Are your eyes open? Be careful. Be careful in relying on any spectrum of the news, be wary. There is an agenda, folks, on both sides. It has driven our news today, for the most part, is driven by consumerism. And so they say what will get you back on their site that fits your political views, that fits your perspective, so that they can sell advertisement. Do not be fooled. And it's on both sides. Are you still engaged? All heads bowed, all eyes closed. I guess it's appropriate to ask this question. I don't ask questions like this all the time. But if Jesus returned today, are you ready? This would be a good time to make that right. And maybe you need to respond right where you're sitting, or maybe you just need to come to an altar and say, God, I need to... I need to talk to you. I need to make things right. Are you still engaged? Or has fear put you in your cellar? And God's saying, listen, I need you. I'm going to ask Ryan just to put some music on, and we're going to wait just a few moments for you to respond, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. Lord, the end is full of uncertainty. When I read the literature books of Revelation and Daniel and I read the writings even in 2 Thessalonians sometimes the images 
are difficult. And the writings are many. Every perspective can be supported by people that write big books, theologians, people we know and trust. But I affirm this morning that Jesus will return. That, that he will, with perfect right, judge the righteous and the unrighteous that we will stand before his throne. That there's coming a day when you will make things right. Will you will reward those who have sought you and you will separate those who have not trusted you. Lord, the truth is, in my life, there's been times where I've seen this with fear or dread. That there's times where I've been tempted to withdraw from a culture that's so chaotic and crazy. But that's not the invitation. The invitation is the same. The invitation is to be present. To allow your spirit to move through us for us to be a different kind of community a community of peace and unity not division and chaos a place where people can be loved where they can encounter this God who is soon coming and be transformed we're not perfect, but you are. So we can trust you in this. Lord, maybe, maybe those are here, that there may be some that are disappointed that I didn't chart this all out. And the truth is, in my life, there's probably not a view that I've not heard. And when I've heard it, the convincing truth, <laughs> the convincing arguments make it all seem plausible. But we do. Lord, help us to be prepared. Help us to be engaged. Help us to trust you even in the midst of this. So that we can join the writer of Revelation in saying, even so, come soon, Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, be with us as we leave this place. May we go as, as agents of your kingdom, of missionaries of your kingdom. May we live and demonstrate something different, something better, something beautiful. And we pray these things in the name of our soon coming King. We, name, we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. God bless, folks.